Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, He Breaks the Bow and Shatters the Spear, Peace Poetry for Memorial Day, 2008. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 1st, 2008. Measured in blood and treasure, the war in Iraq has achieved the status of a major war and a major debacle. That bleak assessment isn't from a Muslim extremist or from a bush basher. In fact, it's the first sentence of a 60-page report released April 18, 2008 by the National Defense University. It's called Choosing War the decision to invade Iraq and its aftermath. The National Defense University website describes itself as the premier center for joint professional military education. It's under the direction of the Chairman Joint Chiefs of Staff. The report directly contradicts more than five years of happy talk by the Bush administration. In addition to the human and financial costs of the Iraq War, the report identifies further consequences of our invasion. Lost respect among allies, doubts about our moral leadership in the world because of our occupation of a Muslim country and our treatment of detainees, diversion from the larger war on global terrorism, severe strains on the Army and Marine Corps, and, instead of making us safer, the transformation of Iraq into what they call a, quote, incubator of terrorism. In a tragic paradox, the report describes Iraq as both a, quote, unquote, must win and a, quote, unquote, can't win. Numerous faulty assumptions, faulty planning, and an imperious attitude on the part of America's senior leaders have resulted in what the report calls a, quote, classic case of failure, end quote. Despite some recent gains, the outcome of the war is in doubt. I believe that in God's eyes, every war is a so-called major debacle and a classic failure. We should never admit that wars are inevitable. They don't have to happen. Wars are a failure of political will and moral imagination, a reminder of the horrible economic disparities in the world over which people fight. They're a capitulation to human fear. As Ken Burns has argued in his documentary film about World War II, some wars might be necessary, but it's wrong to say that they're good or even great. Wars remind us of the deep, very dark, and primitive impulses that reside in each one of us as described in the Genesis narrative for this week. A few pages after the creation story that seven times characterized everything as good, we read that the earth grew corrupt and, quote, full of violence, end quote, Genesis 6, 11. Adam scapegoated Eve. Cain killed Abel in humanity's first fratricide. 
Then Lamech boasted how he was more violent than Cain because he murdered someone for the slightest insult. In a dire diagnosis of our human condition, Genesis records how God lamented that, quote, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Soon after the Civil War ended, many states observed Memorial Days to honor the 600,000 people slaughtered in that war. In 1967, Congress made Memorial Day the official name for the observance. For most people, Memorial Day means a barbecue with neighbors, the opening of the local swimming pool, the beginning of summer, or, since 1911, the annual running of the Indianapolis 500. As a Christian, I find it one of the most ambiguous and awkward weekends of the year. It's a time of year when many believers, certainly not all, confuse their Christian identity with political patriotism, fidelity to Jesus with support for the state. Those two citizenships overlap, but their ultimate concerns are radically different. I appreciate Memorial Day as an opportunity to honor the people whose lives have been cut short by war. And even though Memorial Day is a distinctly American holiday, as a Christian I try to remember the 200 million people all over the world, mainly civilians, who have died in wars in just the last century. Each slain person was precious to God, their family, and their country. Each death in war diminished us. But Memorial Day can also remind us of the many ways we sanitize war with euphemisms like smart bombs <coughs> and collateral damage. In war, the atheist Bertrand Russell once observed, we're quick to say how brave our soldiers, quote-unquote, gave their lives. <coughs> but slow to acknowledge that our own soldiers took the lives of other human beings. All the political propaganda, all the glorifications of valor, and all the slogans about patriotism should never blind us to the horrors and degradations of war. In war, observed Chaplain William Sloan Coffin of Yale, for every boy turned into a man, there are five human beings turned into animals. Memorial Day also makes me think about our nation's priorities. Jim Wallace observes in his book, God's Politics, that government budgets are moral documents. Having just paid my federal income taxes, it bothers me how the government prioritizes the money I send to them. According to the National Priorities Project, here's how the government spent my 2007 tax dollars. 42% went to the military. 22% went to health. 10% interest on non-military debt. 9% anti-poverty programs. 
4% education, training, and social services. 4% government and law enforcement. 3% housing and community development. 3% environment, energy, and science. 2% agricultural, commerce, and transportation. 1% international relations. In 2005, the United States accounted for 48% of the entire world's military spending, which is to say that our one country nearly spent more on the military than the rest of the world combined. Our Department of Defense says that America deploys 254,788 military personnel to at least 725 military bases in 153 countries. Our own country, in addition, is home to 969 separate bases in all 50 states. By these budgetary metrics, the United States prioritizes war like no nation on earth. In the psalm for this week, the Hebrew poet worships God who, quote, makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Psalm 46, verse 9. That vision of God's priorities for peace stands in sharp contrast to humanity's propensity for war. The psalmist's peace poetry reminds me of two prophetic Christians, one ancient and one modern, both of whom demonstrated how the priorities of church and state, throne and altar, Caesar and God, are as different as parallel universes traveling in opposite directions. When the emperor Theodosius who lived from 347 to 395, slaughtered 7,000 people in Thessalonica, as one historian put it, most unjustly and tyrannically. Bishop Ambrose of Milan physically prevented Theodosius from entering his church. The bishop Theodoret recorded the drama in his book, Ecclesiastical History. Listen to his description. You must not be dazzled by the splendor of the purple that you wear, thundered Ambrose to Theodosius. How could you lift up, prayer, lift up in prayer hands which are stained with the blood of such an unjust massacre? Go away, and don't add to your guilt by committing a second crime. Emperor Theodosius submitted to the rebuke, and with tears and groans returned to the palace. After thirty days of public penance, Ambrose later restored him. The Catholic priest and peace activist Philip Berrigan, 1923-2002, was arrested more than a hundred times and served a total of eleven years in prison for acting on his conviction that the gospel of Jesus constituted a higher law 
than the civil laws he disobeyed. Listen to Berrigan. It's spelled out in scripture. It could not possibly be more clear. It's spelled out in the wisdom of Isaiah with its injunction to beat swords into plowshares and to learn war no more. To be acceptable to God, it says, we must forsake our weapons and destroy them. Live as brothers and sisters in peace and love. Christians do not hate. Christians do not kill. Christians love their enemies. It's difficult, but I do know that being a Christian is about nonviolence. It's about justice. It's about being outraged at the way we destroy one another. And now for further reflection. See the two books, one by Chris Hedges, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, from the year 2002, and then Andrew Basevich, The New American Militarism, How Americans Are Seduced by War, from the year 2005. Secondly, do you think the United States is more militaristic than other nations? Third, what are you feeling and thinking about our five years in Iraq? And finally, consider this conundrum. Jesus calls his followers to do something that states and governments cannot do and should not do, to love our enemies and to place the interests of others before our own interests. For books this week, I review a book called Are There Closets in Heaven? A Catholic Father and a Lesbian Daughter Share Their Story. Carol Curo and Robert Curo. Minneapolis Siren Book Company, 2007. 178 pages. When Robert Curo was 65 years old, he came home for lunch one day to a most unwelcome surprise. His wife Joyce was in tears and handed him a letter from their daughter Carol. Mom and Dad, said the letter, I'm gay. Robert Curo was an Irish Catholic farmer from Iowa. Catholic to the core, he didn't even know any non-Catholics. He sent all his children to parochial schools. He had sisters who were nuns, and in his mind, homosexuality was a grievous sin. To say that he was shocked, he says, would have been a gross understatement. Confusion, dread, and fear filled their lives. Four years later, that initial shock was eclipsed by Carol's announcement that she and her partner Susan were expecting a child by artificial insemination. The latter announcement forced their family to come out among their deeply conservative farming community in Iowa. Robert Curo was a loving father 
who wrote all six of his children a letter every week when they were in college. He sent his daughters roses for Valentine's Day. Somehow, we're not surprised that by the end of the story, he's become a staunch advocate of Carol and her partner Susan, and of the greater gay cause. Father and daughter take turns writing alternate chapters in this memoir, beginning with early years on their Iowa farm. Each chapter rehearses the same experiences from their own perspectives. The story they tell operates at at least four overlapping levels. Their extended family, their culturally conservative farm community, the greater arena of legal parity regarding issues like health insurance, finances, housing, and employment, and, of course, fourthly, their religious perspectives as deeply committed Catholics. The memoir does not candy-coat the anguish and tears that their family experienced. And Father Kiro is forthright about his regrets, failures, and baseless stereotypes in the early going. But many families with a similar story are not so lucky. They might improve their chances for a similar healing journey by reading this book. The book concludes with a short list of resources for gay families and a list of ten questions for group discussion. Carol Curo and Robert Curo are their closets in heaven. For film this week, I review a film called Stop Loss from 2008. You know that box inside your head where you put all that bad stuff you can't deal with? Well, my box is full, and all that stuff's coming out. So says Sergeant Brandon King, a decorated war hero. He should know. At the end of his Iraq tour, he intended to quit the military, but was handed a stop-loss and a return ticket to Iraq. In other words, the involuntary extension of his active duty service. In fact, of the 750,000 Americans who have served in Iraq, over 80,000 have been stop-lost. The film follows King and his buddies after they return to a hero's welcome in small-town Texas and empty that box inside your head. And it's a box brimming with nightmares, binge drinking, domestic violence, rage, regret, and very deep ambivalence about the experience of war. Sergeant King and his buddies each present a different facet in response to their return home. A day or two before I watched this film, the most comprehensive study done concluded that 300,000 American veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars suffer from post-traumatic stress disorders. Some reviews have complained that this film is preachy and that the way Sergeant King finally responds to the stop-loss is unconvincing. But in my mind, the merits of reminding us of the human toll of war exceed any flaws in the film. Stop Loss from 2008
And finally this week, we continue our series of poetry by the poet Wendell Berry, who was born in 1934. The title of this film, the title of this poem is Sabbath. It's a short poem, but I hope you'll like it. The mind that comes to rest is tended in ways that it cannot intend, is born, preserved, and comprehended by what it cannot comprehend. Your Sabbath, Lord, thus keeps us by your will, not ours, and it is fit our only choice should be to die into that rest or out of it. Sabbath by Wendell Berry Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 1st, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.